Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Justin Wynn. And we are so glad that you are listening this morning. It's going to be an incredible show. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Geisler and Jason Jimenez the past three weeks. If you missed those incredible interviews, you can get them at godsolutionshow.com. Again, that is godsolutionshow.com. This morning, we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Frank Turek. Dr. Frank Turek was the co-author of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, one of the books that Dr. Geisler co-authored that we talked about over the last three weeks. So today you get to hear from Dr. Turek as well. And this is going to be just the beginning of a three-part discussion with Dr. Turek. The next three weeks, you'll be hearing this interview with Dr. Turek. So we'll begin today, and the following two Sundays will include the next two aspects of the discussion with Dr. Frank Turek. We'll be discussing a whole lot with him, but before we get to that, I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Turek. Dr. Turk is president of Cross-Examined. So Cross-Examined with a D dot O-R-G is the website that you could find more about him at. Cross-Examined dot O-R-G. He often speaks around the country in churches, on college campuses, and in the media. He's been on many different cable TV shows. He has his own cable TV show, it turns out. And his books include I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which I just mentioned, he co-authored that with Dr. Norm Geisler, again, who was on the show the last few weeks. We'll talk to him about that book today. He also wrote Correct, Not Politically Correct, another great book that touches on a very controversial subject, homosexuality and gay marriage. We'll be talking about that with him next week. He wrote Legislating Morality, and he recently wrote Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. We'll talk about that book with him on the third part of this interview a couple weeks from this morning. Anyway, those are some of his books. You can find out more about him, again, like I said, at crossexamined with a D.org, and you should definitely make it a point to check out his weekly TV show called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's on Wednesday nights at 7 and 11, and it is on DirecTV channel 378. I hope you'll check it out. You can also check out his column, at townhall.com. Again, that's townhall.com. Again, find out more about Dr. Turek at crossexamined.org. And again, that's crossexamined with a D, crossexamined.org. And definitely go to amazon.com or wherever you buy books and check out some of his books. Well, like I said, today we're going to be talking to him about I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, one of his books, one of the books that he co-authored with Dr. Geisler, and we'll be getting into a whole lot from that book this morning. I hope you enjoy this first part of the interview with Dr. Turek. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Turek. Hey, thanks for having me on. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Basically through apologetics, because I always wanted to know who Jesus was. I was brought up in a, in a Catholic home, but... And I went to Catholic high school, but I, I never really knew who Jesus was. I always believed in God. I didn't know who Jesus was. And when I was in the Navy, I was befriended by a son of a Methodist minister, and I had all sorts of questions. And he got me Josh McDowell books, like Evidence Demands a Verdict and More Than a Carpenter. So I came to faith through apologetics. And how did you develop an interest in apologetics? That way, because I, I started reading evidence and said, hey, this stuff's true. 
And uh, why does it take more faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian? Well, it depends on how you define faith. If we take the Richard Dawkins definition of faith, he's the most famous atheist in the world, as you know, he says faith is believing something that you know ain't so or something against the evidence. That's not the biblical definition of faith. The biblical definition of faith is is trusting in what you have good reason to believe, uh, because there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that something is true, like Christianity, and belief in is trusting in Christ once you know that Jesus is the Savior. But let's go back to Dawkins' uh, formulation of faith. He says that faith is believing what you know ain't so, or what you have no evidence to believe. You just take it blindly. Well, if that's the definition of faith, then atheists have to have a lot more faith than we do, <laughs> because there's a lot of evidence that Christianity is true, and there's very little evidence, in fact, I argue really none, that atheism is true or that there is no God, because, as I argue in my new book, uh, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, any argument an atheist makes against God presupposes that God exists. But the first book that Dr. Norman Geiser and I wrote on this subject was called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it goes from the very beginning, does truth exist, all the way through, does God exist, are miracles possible, is the New Testament reliable, and is the entire Bible true? It goes in a sequential order to show the evidence that Christianity is true. So a lot of times I say on this show and in other areas that we all have to live by faith. In fact, marriage is a great example. I live daily by faith, trusting that my wife isn't cheating on me. But you have, have good reason, though, to believe that. Exactly. I have good yeah. reason to believe that. Mm -hmm. And most people live daily with similar convictions and similar trust based on good reason. We can't prove those things necessarily. And I think it's always a good illustration, and it's a good way to bring people back to this reality that Every day we live by faith in so many different areas, and when we come to Christ, we follow the evidence where it leads, and we have a great reason to take a confident step trusting him because of the evidence. That's right. It's trust in light of the evidence. It's not trust in spite of the evidence. And uh, the atheists misunderstand faith. In the Bible, the word really means trust. So after you know that God exists, then trust in him for your salvation. It doesn't mean blindly going and despite every piece of evidence to the contrary saying it's true, as you know, the Bible over and over again says to get evidence, to always have a, a reason for the hope that you have, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Come let us reason together. Demolish arguments and take every thought captive to Christ. So, yeah, they, they don't understand what faith means, but they have to have a lot more faith to believe that everything's made of molecules, just materialism, than to believe that there really is a God out there who established the immaterial realities we all use to know anything. And atheism, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but atheism, I've always said, is kind of an argument from ignorance. So they're not presenting evidence for atheism. Their whole argument rests on the theist or the Christian not having any evidence, which, of course, you have shown in your books and many others as well. That's just not the case. Right. Well, most atheists today are, aren't just, they don't just lack a belief in God, as they try and say. They have a positive belief in materialism. They think everything's made of molecules and there is no immaterial realm. Well, the problem with that is is that there, we all know there's an immaterial realm. In fact, we're using it right now to even talk exactly. the, the laws of uh, logic. And in order to understand one another, we have to rely on these laws of logic. 
Uh, we have to rely on the fact that we have a mind and not just a brain, because if we're just a brain, as the atheists say, if every thought we have is the result of a previous natural cause over which we have no control, then we have no reason to believe anything we think, including the thought that atheism is true. So atheists have made reason impossible by their worldview of materialism, yet they try and say materialism is true. And that's why I say in the book that when atheists try and make arguments against God, they're stealing from God to argue against him. The laws of logic, the immaterial realities that we all use in order to reason at all, only exist if God exists, if there is an immaterial realm, and atheism says there is no immaterial realm. So in effect, they're using the immaterial to say there is no immaterial. So they have to sit in God's lap to slap his face. <laughs> Good way of putting it. Where did the universe come from, and what does that prove? Well, the evidence shows that space, matter, and time had a beginning. The scientific evidence shows this. The philosophical evidence shows this. And in fact, um, space, matter, and time having a beginning implies, of course, that whatever caused space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In other words, it must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial also powerful to create the universe out of nothing, also intelligent to create it in such a fine-tuned way in which it is, and also personal in order to choose to create. Impersonal forces can't choose to create, only persons can. So from the very first, or from the evidence we have that the universe had a beginning, which there's scientific, as I say, and philosophical evidence, and by the way, atheists don't even dispute this anymore. Even an atheist like Stephen Hawking says, almost everyone now believes that space, matter, and time had a beginning at the Big Bang. They all agree with that. They're trying to come up with another explanation for how the universe could bang itself into existence without a cause. But they all admit the data that the universe had a beginning. Well, if space, matter, and time had a beginning, then whatever created the universe must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal to choose to create, and, of course, intelligence to do, such, to do so in a fine-tuned way in which the universe is created. So... When you look at just the evidence of the beginning of the universe, you wind up with the attributes of a theistic god, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator. And that is exciting to me. When, when we read Romans 1 and we see that God's invisible attributes are clearly portrayed in nature, that's exactly what we see, what you just said. And it's incredible that God displays himself like that, even, even the beginning of the universe pointing to his invisible attributes. So you mentioned design and the intricate design of the universe, not only is the universe here? Not only did the universe come from nothing a finite time ago, leading to the reality and uh, helping us see the truth that it was created by something greater than itself, but the universe also is intricately designed. What does that tell us? Well, you're talking about the fine-tuning of the universe. In the very beginning, certain aspects and factors about the universe, certain constants in the laws of nature are highly fine-tuned that if any one of them were slightly different there would be no universe and there would be no life and some of these go all the way back to the very beginning of the universe like the expansion rate in fact Hawking again the atheist says if the expansion rate of the universe were different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies so from the very beginning of the universe uh, the expansion rate is fine-tuned. Now, you can't make any sort of cosmic evolutionary argument for that to say that, oh, we evolved to this fine-tuned state. No, that is an initial condition of the universe. Whoever created the universe created it in that fine-tuned way from the very beginning, 
Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So this fine-tuning appears to be best explained by a designer. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're interviewing Dr. Frank Turek, world-renowned apologist. Now, what about evolution? What about it? We hear that all of us just evolved from nothing originally. We've talked about that on the show before. I believe that evolution is wrong. Again, for the listeners that are listening, my degree in college was in chemistry, and I took lots of biology. And as a scientist, I realized that you don't just get something from nothing like this, and we surely don't get the type of complexity that we see all around us from natural processes. It never happens, and it hasn't happened. So what about evolution? Is it right? Is it wrong? What do you think we should tell the people listening this morning that say, gosh, I can't believe in God because I believe it all just naturally evolved? Well, first of all, you need to define what you mean by evolution. I mean, when, you, when somebody says you believe in evolution, you ought, to, you, ought to be, you ought to say, well, what do you mean by evolution? Do you mean change over time? Count me in. Do you, do you mean microevolution, adaptation within species? Count, count me in. We observe that. Do you mean macroevolution, the molecules-to-man version, where there's no intelligence and all life is ancestrally related and there's been no intelligence along the way? I not only think there's no evidence for that, there's evidence against that. Absolutely. So it depends on what kind of evolution you're talking about. But let's say for the sake of argument that macroevolution is true, which it isn't, but let's just say for the sake of argument that it's true. What does that prove? Well, it proves that maybe God wasn't necessary to get new life forms, at least in the sense that he wasn't directly involved. He's always involved because he has to maintain the laws of nature that are so precise and orderly, but he didn't do a miracle, so to speak, in order to get life here. Again, I don't think this is true, but let's just say it is for the sake of argument. Um, that says nothing about where the first life came from. It says nothing about where the universe came from or why the universe is fine-tuned. It says nothing about the laws of nature themselves, where where they came from. It says nothing about the laws of logic, the laws of morality, the laws of mathematics. I mean, macroevolution explains very little about what we observe in the world, if it explains anything. So to say that that somehow gets rid of the need for God is ridiculous. Dinesh D'Souza even makes a funny point. I don't agree with him on the theistic evolution side of things Mm -hmm. at all. But he makes a really interesting point that if it were true that evolution occurred, it would be an even greater miracle. He says not only would there have to be an explanation for how everything came to be, but also for how there could be this process that made things better over time. So he would say if it is true, it just gets the the critic in even deeper trouble as far as an explanation for how things got to where they are today. Yeah, well, I agree with him that, in fact, uh, it you still need God just for the laws of nature to be so precise and fine-tuned. And those laws of nature are necessary for any macroevolutionary process to work. So, yeah, evolution itself, according to them, is random. It's got no end in mind. But the laws of nature aren't random. The laws of nature are repetitive, precise, and consistently goal-directed. Well, if they're goal-directed, which they are, there must be an external intellect goal-directing them. That's what we mean by God. So even if macroevolution were 100% true, it doesn't get rid of the need for God. And in fact, it's not true. Uh, In my new book, Stealing from God, there's a whole chapter on this. And one of the reasons we know it isn't true is, first of all, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the the genome, which in the human being is 3.5 billion letters long, 
is the product of intelligence. You don't get messages from repetitive natural forces. You only get messages from minds. And a message three and a half billion letters long requires intelligence. Just like if you're walking along the beach and you see in the sand, John loves Mary, you don't assume the waves did that or crabs came out of the water and made that message. You go, that's the product of intelligence, even a short message like that. Well, if a message that long requires intelligence, certainly a message 3.5 billion letters long requires intelligence. And by the way, this is not a God of the gaps argument. We're not arguing from a gap in our knowledge. We're not arguing from what we don't know. We're arguing from what we do know. We do know that messages only come from minds and they don't come from natural laws. So when we see a message, we always infer a mind. Secondly, if you were to take this DNA and try and mutate it, which is what natural selection is supposed to do, you will never get a new body plan, which is what you need for macroevolutionary change. Why? Because DNA alone does not govern body plans or is not sufficient to change body plans. You need another form of information called epigenetic information. And we talk about this in Chapter 3 of the book, Stealing from God. Epigenetic information is the structure of the cell and the tissues and the body. That's not dictated or that's not determined necessarily by DNA. It's, a new t it's another type of information that isn't uh, alterable by any sort of mutation. So it's not a code. It's just information that isn't mutatable. So you can mutate DNA from now till the end of time. You'll never get a new body plan. It's analogous to saying, well, you've got a blueprint to build a house, and that's the information right there on your blueprint. You may have writing that tells you how to build a house and all this. Well, you can mutate the writing all day long. You'll never get a house without lumber and nails and cement and all those structural things you need to build it. You can't get a house by just mutating the plans to build a house. You actually need the structure. Same thing is true in the cell. You, you can't just mutate the, the, the instructions of the cell. You need the structure itself. If I'm not mistaken, every phylum that's present today was present at the Cambrian explosion, which is exactly what you're saying. We don't see new body parts arising. What is in each of these major body systems and parts is, is something that is a product of design, not just chances. Uh, you mentioned, too, that this is not a God of the gaps argument, and others have noted, and I think it's just uh, kind of pertinent to repeat it here, that for the scientist that claims that science could be responsible for all this or that natural processes could be responsible for all this, this is actually the scientist appealing to the science of the gaps. We have yeah, no an, science to back yeah. this up. It's a natural law of the gaps. In fact, I was at University of Michigan doing a presentation, and I gave the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. And one atheist said, oh, this is a God of the gaps argument. I said, no, it's not a God of the gaps argument. He said, no, if you give science more time, we're going to find a natural <laughs> cause for the universe. I said, John, that was his name. I said, John, you'll never find a natural cause for all of nature. He said, oh, no, we will. I said, first of all, John, saying give me more time and science will figure out a way that sounds a lot like faith, right? You're waiting for a future discovery. It's a faith position. But secondly, you will never find a natural cause for all of nature because nature is the effect. It can't be the cause. I said to say just if you were going to say that if you give science more time, I'll figure out a natural cause for all of nature, that would be like me saying if you give me more time, 
I'll figure out that I gave birth to my own mother. <laughs> no, there's no way to do that in principle. If nature is the effect, it can't be the cause. Whatever created nature can't be made of nature. Whatever created nature must be beyond nature. That's what we mean by supernature, supernatural, beyond the natural. So changing tracks a little bit and talking a little bit more about Jesus, is there good historical evidence for Jesus? Oh, yeah, there's plenty. We cover it in the Stealing from God book and the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist book. Yeah, there's there's great historical evidence for Jesus, not only from Christian writers, but even non-Christian writers. Great. And talking about that evidence, is there any good eyewitness evidence for Jesus? Yeah, because the New Testament writers have proven to be eyewitnesses. Why? Because they put eyewitness details in the text that only an eyewitness would know. Uh, in fact, in our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we cite 84 details that just Luke the author of the book of Acts, put between chapter 13 and chapter 28, the end of the book of Acts, 84 details of eyewitness de- or that, that have been confirmed to be eyewitness details by Roman historian Colin Hemmer. He went through the book of Acts with a fine-tooth comb and pulled out all of these details. Some of them are very minor and trivial, but they would only have been known by an eyewitness. I mean, he's got obscure language, obscure rulers, right, you know, who is the the equivalent of a mayor in a given town in the Mediterranean. He's, Luke's got that right. He, he has wind directions, right. He has local slang in some towns, right. He even has the depth of the water off Malta, right, when they run aground in chapter 27 of the book of Acts. And all these are, all these are listed in, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, chapter uh, 10. And uh, there are several other details in the Gospel of Luke. There are 59 historically confirmed eyewitness details in the Gospel of John alone. They're all listed in Chapter 10 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. These people were there. They, they certainly were eyewitnesses. Otherwise, they couldn't have put all these details in the text. And is there good historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection? Well, I certainly think so, yeah. I mean, <laughs> those folks were there. They saw what they saw, and then they went and died for it. And they even put embarrassing details in there that they wouldn't have invented, like they ran away at the crucifixion. Who's going who's gonna to put that in there and say that the women were the brave ones? I mean, men wrote this down. They're not going to invent embarrassing details about themselves. They're just telling the truth here. Uh, even the even the enemies of Christianity admitted the tomb was empty. That's why they came up with the disciples came and stole the body story. Which, by the way, wasn't just in the Gospel of Matthew. It was an ongoing debate 100 years after the resurrection. The Christians kept saying, Jesus has risen from the dead, and, and, the, uh, and the Jews kept saying the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. Well, why are they coming up with an alibi for an empty tomb if his body's still in their own tomb? They're admitting the tomb was empty. And, of course, Jesus appeared to many people. That's the only way I can explain while or why the initial believers, the initial Christians, who were all previously Jews, decided to abandon Judaism and adopt Christianity, precisely because of the resurrection. Why would they have done so otherwise? Why would they give up a religion where they thought they were God's chosen people? Why would they give all that up for this new belief, under great persecution, by the way, if it never really happened? They, they did so, because it did really happen, and they paid with their lives for it. And if Jesus rose from the dead, that truly changes everything. So if, if you're listening this morning and you want more evidence concerning the resurrection, 
I would encourage you to go to godsolutionshow.com and listen to our interviews with Gary Habermas, Mike Lacona. We have a few others. Craig Evans spoke about it last Easter. Listen to some of those shows and hear some of the evidence. Listen to Habermas's minimal facts that even critical scholars agree on. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if he really did, like the evidence says he did, that changes absolutely everything. Nobody else has ever backed up their claim to be able to give you eternal life like Jesus did. And you owe it to yourself as a listener this morning to investigate the historical evidence for the resurrection. Should our listeners, the listeners of this show, reject atheism and turn to Jesus? And how would you encourage them? Well, yes, because Jesus is true. Jesus is the Savior. And atheism is false. In fact, as soon as you try and make an argument for atheism, materialistic atheism, you're using immaterial realities that only exist if God exists. So you're stealing from God to argue against them. Look, atheism is not only false, it offers nobody anything. Because what happens, ultimately, you all become worm food. We all just die. Well, what's the point of life, then? There is no objective meaning to life. Everything's ultimately irrelevant if atheism is true. Now, we all know that's not the case. We all know that life does have meaning. We all know that many aspects of our lives are deeply meaningful. And we have a sense that, as as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, that there's something eternal about us that, he said that uh, the heart uh, the heart is fixed on eternity. I'm trying to think of the exact quote in my mind right now, but he basically, oh, he, it, it says, uh, the Lord has put eternity on our hearts. I mean, we, we know there's something more to this life than just you live 70 years and then you die. Uh, atheism says, oh, no, you just die and that's it. And Christianity, of course, says, no, there's real meaning. You're here to know God and to make him known and he can save you from your sins. That's the story of Jesus. He, he saves us because he lives the perfect life in our place, and his perfect life covers our sins. Well, that concludes the first part of our interview with Dr. Frank Turek. I hope you enjoyed it as we discussed his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and some of the issues that he dealt with in that book. Again, you can get this interview at godsolutionshow.com, and please tune in next Sunday and the Sunday after that for the following two parts of our interview with Dr. Turek. Again, find out more about Dr. Turek at crossexamined.org. Again, that's crossexamined with a D, dot O-R-G, crossexamined.org. And tune in over the next two weeks for the second and third parts of our interview. Well, all the evidence that we heard this morning comes to an important conclusion. The reality is that Jesus really is who he says he is. The evidence tells us that is the case. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is God in human flesh and that he came and lived a perfect life on this planet and he died for your sins and mine. See, our sin separates us from God. The Bible says that you are sinful and that your sinfulness and your selfishness separate you from a perfect and loving God who's loved you eternally. The reality is that left like that, we'd be in serious trouble. We'd be separated from him for all of eternity. Thankfully, God came. He lived a perfect life that I could never live, and he died the death that I deserved on the cross. The Bible tells us he literally nailed the record that was against us to the cross. And he did that so that anyone who receives his free gift of salvation by putting their faith and trust in him, receiving him as Savior and Lord, could be adopted into his family guaranteed a life 
of meaning and fulfillment and abundance here on this planet, one of purpose and significance here and now, and a life with him for all of eternity. If you've never taken that step, I ask that you'd consider that this morning. You could even do it right now through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins. I pray that you would forgive me. I thank you for rising from the dead to give me new life. I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible says that if you just put your faith and trust in him this morning, you've been adopted into his family, and you have a lifetime of meaning and abundance and purpose on this planet to look forward to, as well as an eternity with him in heaven. I hope that you took that step today. If you did, let me know by going to godsolutionshow.com and using the contact form. You could also visit a local church this morning. Go to godsolutionshow.com and check out our list of local churches there. And stop by this week, Tuesday, Jones 140 at 6 p.m. to learn more about Jesus. I hope to see you there. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that you'll find him today. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Hi.